from Connecticut, and I'm really pleased and honored to be here with Preet Bahara, the former United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, and the author of a wonderful book, Doing Justice. And I may say, in the interest of full disclosure, that I found this book to be really remarkable in its insight, its readability, and its profound ideas for not only appreciating, but also improving our public discourse. And I want to ask you right off the bat, Preet, uh, how did you come to write this book? I know you sort of thought about it as a guide initially, maybe for other prosecutors, why you were serving in the Southern District of New York, but talk a little bit about why you wrote the book. Sure. First, Senator, it's, it's, it's an honor to be with you and, and to be interviewed about the book uh, by someone like you, given all the jobs you've had, uh, and you've had them all in law enforcement and in government, and so it's very high praise thank indeed, you. so thank you. So yeah, as I say in the preface to the book, you know, my initial thought after I had been U.S. Attorney for a few years was to jot down some of the thoughts that I had about how, you know, young folks who are idealistic and you know, are smart folks and have gone to the best law schools but haven't really applied their common sense and judgment, you know, to delivering justice to the community, what some lessons might be for them. Uh, and then, you know, I had this thing where I was, I was fired by the President of the United States and I had a little bit more time and began to think, you know, some of the stories that I could tell based on the cases that I oversaw and that I did personally, you know, maybe have larger lessons. And so the book, you know, ends up being, I think, for folks who were wondering, uh, is it a law book? Is it not a law book? Because it has a very serious legal title on the cover, uh, you know, Prosecutor's Thoughts on, on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. It's really for everybody because the issues of, of what is truth, uh, what is fairness, how do you keep an open mind, uh, how do you discipline folks, how do you um, make sure that you rely on expertise, you rely on evidence. We're always making judgments about things. As I say at one point in the book, uh, in a chapter about judges, you know, we've all been judged and we've all sat in judgment of other people. If you've ever participated in competition in business or in sport uh, or any other kind of activity where you have to make a judgment about somebody else, you understand what judging is about. So the book is really uh, you know, told through stories that, that I oversaw in criminal justice, but really is about decision-making, moral reasoning, uh, how to become a better person, how to do the right thing, whether you're you know, a, a person who works in a school or a business or a factory or a U.S. Attorney's Office. And I think that's one of the remarkable features of this book, that it has something to say to such a broad array of people, obviously to any of us who are lawyers, but also to non-lawyers, to ordinary citizens who have an interest in our criminal justice system and in it being improved. And you come to this book with such a depth of experience as an assistant United States Attorney before you became United States Attorney, and then a legislative aide to Senator Schumer. So you really bring a breadth of experience in the political world, in the legislative world, and in the prosecutorial world. And I want to come right to what I found one of the very significant abiding themes of the book, which is that people do justice. The law alone cannot do justice. And when do you think in the course of your career you began coming to that conclusion? Well, I think I didn't come to the conclusion in a, in a way that was mature uh, and evolved until much later in life. But as I, I recite in the early part of the book, when I was 15 years old, I at least got an inkling as to what was, this, this was about. I, um, 
was not very good at sports, <laughs> but I did do other kinds of competition, including uh, participating in speech competition. And there's a category of speech competition still to this day uh, in high schools around the country where you deliver a speech that was written by someone else. It's called declamation, which I say is sort of the, the nerd version of covering someone else's song. I was 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school. I delivered uh, a portion of a summation given by Clarence Darrow back in the 1920s when he was representing a young man named Henry Sweet. Uh, and Henry Sweet was a young black man who, along with his brother, was defending their house in the suburbs of Detroit back then, in a, you know, a nice suburb of Detroit, where a lot of the white folks thought, well, we can't have black people here. And they amassed outside the home, and a shot was fired in defense of the house, and a white man was killed, and Henry Sweet went on trial for his life. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is he had Clarence Darrow, maybe the foremost criminal defense lawyer in the country, maybe ever, uh, in terms of his success for his clients. And in that summation, he talks about the plight of African Americans in this country, and he talks about the law, and he makes his, his defense based on legal principles of, of self-defense, and as you might imagine. But he says, uh, you know, the law has made him equal, talking about African Americans, but man has not. And the last analysis is, what has man done, not what has the law done? And it is true, as you know, as a sitting United States Senator, you take an oath to the Constitution, and you actually introduce bills, you pass laws, you're a lawmaker. Uh, we are a nation of laws, not men. That's an incredibly important principle that we teach our children in civics classes and also in law school. But we leave something out when we say only that, and that is you can have well-crafted laws, you can have nice statutes, you can have nice, you know, nice constitutional provisions, but if the people who are responsible for enforcing those laws, interpreting them, deciding how to exercise their discretion, if they're not good and decent, then you have a problem. And, and that was best encapsulated in another part of the summation that Clarence Darrow delivered on behalf of Henry Sweet, where he said... No matter what laws we pass, no matter what precautions we take, unless the people we meet are kindly and decent and human and liberty-loving, then there is no liberty. Freedom comes from human beings rather than from laws and institutions. The law really is dependent on good people to enforce it, people with character and values and judgment and decency. And I think that comes across so strongly in the book, as well as the... I think you call it the ocean of discretion. Yeah, ocean. I think I use the plural. <laughs> because, as you know, it's interesting, you know, to have this conversation with you. I haven't um, been interviewed about the book by a sitting United States senator, but you know, you'll pass a law and you voted on many, and you can't have every statute be seventy-five pages long. I mean, some of them are, but no matter what you do in order to reach compromise with your colleagues across the aisle, even within your own party, there are going to be decisions that prosecutors have to make and defense lawyers have to make and judges have to make where decisions go this way or that way. And then you rely upon the goodwill and good faith of, of good people to carry out Congress's intent, but also make sure that the spirit of the law is being upheld as well. And I tell my colleagues, by the way, and I've said it ad nauseum on the floor of the United States Senate, the best laws are dead letter. They are worthless unless they are enforced, unless are enforcers are given the resources they need unless we hire good people to do the kind of work that you did. And that brings to mind also another remarkable feature of this book. You really tell it in stories. It's not in generalities. You illustrate these points so vividly and so dramatically in the stories you tell. And I want to ask you to talk about one, uh, Eric Gleason. Yeah, Eric Gleason, sure. Because you say, talking about Clarence Darrow, criminal defense lawyers 
don't have a monopoly on fixing miscarriages of justice or righting wrongs, which I think is profoundly true about prosecutors, that they yeah. can really fix miscarriages of justice. Yeah, I mean, one way that, that they make sure that miscarriages of justice don't happen, they exercise their discretion not to bring a case. And there's another chapter in the book where I talk about that. And not everyone is happy when you don't bring a case, but sometimes that's what justice requires. The case of Eric Lisson, that, that's one of the most inspiring things that, that I had very little to do with people in my office. A lot of the book is about, not a, it's not about me, it's about these heroes uh, of the type that I'm sure you oversaw uh, when you had the same job, who do their work, who don't go on television, who are not in the newspaper articles, and they just try to make their community and their, and their district a little better and a little safer. So one day, this gentleman, Eric Lisson, who had been prosecuted by the Bronx DA's office uh, 17 years earlier, he writes a letter, and as you know, not that uncommon a letter, in which he says, I, I'm in prison for a crime I did not commit. And he sent the letter to uh, a prosecutor in my office who had long since left, but it didn't go in the trash because there's a long time investigator, former cop in my office named John O'Malley, who was a great man in many, many ways, now retired. And he had once told the person who takes in the mail, uh, if you ever see anything about, and all mail gets opened and screened uh, at, a, at, a US, at a U.S. attorney's office. And you get thousands of Thousands. And prison. it's hard to you know, discern what is real, what's yeah. not. So if you ever see a letter about a murder, a homicide, that's, you know, that's what I do. Send it my way. So one afternoon, John O'Malley reads this letter from this guy he's never heard of, who says, I'm, I'm in prison for a crime I hadn't that I didn't commit. And he's reading the description, and he notices it's in a particular spot, in a particular streets uh, in the Bronx. And he thinks to himself, I, I think I've heard about this before. And he has this, you know, all good investigators, as you know, have a steel trap mind, an encyclopedic knowledge of not just, you know, gangs in New York, but also the cases that he had been involved in. And he realizes that what is being described in the letter sounds very close to a homicide or an attempted homicide that he heard the confessions about from two other people a few years earlier. And he reads more and he decides, and he easily could have just put it to the side, so well, this person had clearly had a defense lawyer and a trial and an appeal that was rejected. I got better things to do. I have my own cases, my own docket. He didn't do that. He decided to investigate further. He ended up, over time, talking to the people who had flipped and had confessed to this crime. It sounded very similar. He tried to get more documentation on it. And long story short, people have to read the book to get all the, uh, the little twists and turns and details, but... He ends up believing... We don't want to spoil the book. We don't want to spoil it fully. Uh, <laughs> but it's a great story. And he ends up going to visit Eric Lisson uh, in, in prison at Sing Sing, having come to the conclusion... You know, he told me and he told the chief of, um, of our violent crimes, you know, Margaret Garnett about it, too, that I, he's innocent. And he goes and he, and he sees him in a waiting room, and the guy you know, can be forgiven a little bit for being surly. And the first thing he says, I said, John, uh, what did he say to you? So the first thing he said is, who the F are you? which, you know, you could forgive his surliness. And, and John O'Malley pulled out the letter and said, did you write this letter? And Eric Lisson's face changed, and he said, um, I did. He's like, I'm, I'm John O'Malley. I'm from the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York, and I believe you, and I believe you're innocent, and I'm going to try to get you out of here. At which point, Eric fell on the ground and began crying. And then, you know, it's not so simple as that. You don't just snap your fingers, and because one guy in some other office thinks you're in prison for a crime you haven't committed, you get out. He had to file an affidavit on behalf of uh, the defense, work with the defense lawyers. And it turns out it wasn't just Eric, but five other people had been convicted of, of crimes, uh, that, of that crime that evening, the, the murder of a livery cab driver in the Bronx. And they were also exonerated and set free. And it, it's, it's one of these stories that when I tell it in greater detail, uh, I think it has more force 
if I'm talking to a group of cops or a group of AUSAs um, or other aspiring uh, law students, than any statistic you can cite. Because you explain that it took the work of a good person like John O'Malley, who, who had other things to do, who didn't have to spend you know, months of his life, by definition, implicating you know, sort of fellow law enforcement agents in something that didn't go right. Uh, but that eventually justice can be done. And this case was one of a number where, in fact, you did exonerate people because you paid attention to the innocent, uh, the perhaps wrongly convicted, as well as putting a lot of people behind bars, sending them away because they were bad people and they did bad things. Yeah, that's incredible. That's, look, that's an important part of the job. You know, people forget, and they watch a lot of movies, and they watch a lot of TV, and they think, well, the prosecutor's job is to send people to prison. That's not the prosecutor's job. The prosecutor's job is to make sure that justice is done. And sometimes that means that people should be held accountable and their freedom is taken away uh, because a judge determines that to be the correct uh, thing to do. But sometimes that means walking away from a case. Sometimes it means helping other people uh, get out of prison because they don't belong there. And, and in, you know, that story enabled me to say, based on a, a concrete example, and there are other examples of this, that you know, we, we need to be taught to run just as fast to exonerate the innocent as we do to convict the guilty. It's not just the second thing, it's also the first thing. I will tell you, that story had particular resonance for me because I served as United States Attorney, as you did. I served in Connecticut, a much smaller office. But then, after I left that office, I was asked by the NAACP to represent an individual in Florida who was on death row, wrongly convicted, managed to show he was wrongly convicted. He spent, as did Eric Gleason, a lot of years in prison. But as a member of our profession, we have a duty and a responsibility to justice, something larger than just winning cases. Yeah. And the other reason I felt that story, and this whole book is quite remarkable, is that, as you said, you give a lot of credit to the people who worked with you, and maybe in terms of title, worked for you. Right. But clearly, you had a very collegial relationship with these professionals. They really oh, are yeah. I, professionals who deserve our admiration and respect. In particularly in a time like today, not to get political, but there's a lot of denigration of government service. You know, we had this long shutdown, which, you know, I blame all of Washington for all of Washington for that. It's politics, which I don't fully understand. But what I didn't like is when, you know, certain people in certain quarters were, didn't really care that they were government workers who they would, uh, you know, assign the, the, the name, uh, you know, non-essential when everyone is essential and, and didn't seem to honor their service. You know, people who every day, whether you're a postal worker and from my experience, people in the U.S. Attorney's Office, they could be doing other things. They could be making more money. They could be, you know, bringing home uh, more resources for their family. They could be working less hard. And they come in, the staff, the investigators, um, the, uh, the analysts, the assistant U.S. attorneys, every day uh, facing really, really difficult work and sometimes, you know, depressing work because you see the worst that people have to offer when you're doing criminal prosecution. And they do it because they're idealistic and they want to make the world better. And when you say, you know, I give some credit, all the credit goes to them, you know, to my mind. Uh, I, I, I use a phrase from time to time that I, the great Pat Fitzgerald who also was a U.S. attorney in Chicago for a period of time, saying, I tried as much as possible to get out of their way and let them, do, let them do the good work. And I thought it was important for people to understand 
uh, that there are such good public servants around and get to know them a little bit in detail and by name because ordinarily it's only the head of the office whose name goes on the indictment or on the pleadings and um, who announces the case or the arrest or the sentencing at a press conference. We, were, we would be nowhere without all those good men and women. And uh, I think that uh, readers of this book will appreciate that some of the denigrating comments about law enforcement, whether it's FBI or local police, that come from certain people in certain quarters are just totally unjustified because these are really dedicated professionals who keep us safe. They, they are. And, and the other thing, another theme in the book, to bring us into reality and not what you see on television, is that um, you know, consistent with this idea that prosecutors are supposed to do justice and not just you know, notch victories on their belt. But the way you go about uh, serving justice is important. You know, the mantra that I recite in the book over and over again that I heard Mary Jo White say, who was the U.S. attorney who hired me, and I heard others say, and then I tried to say uh, as often as I could, was you only have one job, and that's to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And all three of those things are important. It's important to do it in the right way. And so when you also have people suggesting that you're supposed to rough up witnesses or you're supposed to torture people in order to get information from them, A, that's not right and that's not moral, but B, maybe even more effective argument you know, with respect to those people is that it's not effective. And there's an entire chapter on interrogation and how you get information from people. And I think I say something mildly obnoxious, like you know, where in the real world, where testosterone doesn't flow in the streets like a river, people understand. Cops, FBI agents, DEA agents, uh, CIA analysts, you, you name it. They understand that the way you get information from people is by building a rapport with them and by having them think that they're talking to someone who cares about them, sees them as a human being, not by you know, waving a bat around or by torturing them if you want real, good, true, and honest information. There's the anecdote I tell about uh, Jimmy Motto, who was in my office for a long time, former cop, and there was this debate, which you may remember, over whether or not the FBI should begin uh, videotaping interrogations of people in custody. And I said, Jimmy, what do you think about this? And he said, well, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm not sure the jury would like what it, what it sees. And you might think that that meant he was concerned that they would see uh, agents and cops roughing up witnesses. And it's the opposite. You know, he, Jimmy focused on terrorism cases sometimes. He said, I, I don't want it to look like this guy who tried to plant a bomb and kill Americans. I'm offering him a sandwich. I'm getting him coffee. I'm asking about his family. How's that going to look that I'm coddling the guy? But I'm doing that not because I think he's my friend. I think he, you know, he did very, very bad things and should pay a price for that. But if I want to find out who his co-conspirators were, if I want to find out what the plot is, if I want to find out how to keep everyone safe, then that's how I have to be with that person. And that's, a, I think, a very important myth to explode. I thought that chapter was enormously important, you know, as a U.S. Senator, I got to know John McCain pretty well and heard him talk about torture and how it is totally ineffective, which is why he, as a former prisoner of war, opposed waterboarding and other use of force and threats. And I think some of the stories you tell, for example, the one about the uh, police or agent who was interrogating, I think his name was Samir, and he brought him... Lebanese food as yeah. a means of showing respect, really use that word respect Some of the way to somebody's heart is through their stomach. There are a number of stories um, in a related chapter on cooperation and on you know, flipping witnesses. And the question always, how do you get somebody to do what's in their best interests and help you convict other folks? <laughs> it's the story of 
of, um, of, of Jimmy, who was a longtime DEA agent, uh, really, really smart person. And as you see, it's not just about you know, brain smarts, which he had plenty of. It's also making a connection with people. And, and the best interrogators, agents, investigators know how to make a connection with somebody. And there was a, there was a big-time drug trafficker who was arrested with, I think, seven kilos of heroin, if I remember correctly. And Jimmy thought, well, this is going to be a, you know, a big deal cooperator if he flips at some point. And he had in his head, uh, I think the gentleman was Lebanese, as you say, that he's not going to like the food he's getting at the Metropolitan Detention Center uh, in Brooklyn. So he had this thought that he would go to a, you know, a food truck, a, you know, a Middle Eastern food truck. He would sit in the room <clears throat> with, the, with the defendant, uh, and he would, just, he would bring him a shawarma, and he would have a shawarma, and he would eat the shawarma, and he would see that the, the, you know, the jail-issued bologna and cheese or, or whatever it was uh, sandwich was not going to cut it for him. And he silently ignored the shawarma and the kebabs the first time, the second time, the third time. Eventually, at some point, uh, as Jimmy tells the story, the defendant looks up and says, you know, what do you want from me? And then they had a moment, and he ate the food, and, which is not to say that it was just the food. Uh, you know, he obviously had done some thinking and some cost-benefit analysis for himself. Yeah, but, but those kinds of things make a difference. As Jimmy put, you know, it's a, sign, it's a sign of respect. If you bring a person the food that they cherish from their homeland, that's a sign of respect. And that respect can sometimes be then reciprocated. And you talk about also, I think, in a very meaningful way, the care that has to be taken with the cooperators, the open mind that you need to keep, and the corroboration that you need to give them. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So this whole issue <clears throat> of cooperating witnesses, which some people have been learning for the first time through the lens of the special counsel's investigation and my former office's investigation and Michael Cohen and what does it mean to flip and who flips and why do you flip and is it moral? It's, as you remember from your experience, you do it and it's a bread and butter, of, especially in mob cases. You, know, you get this person on a, on a charge and then they realize it's good for them to flip against somebody else. But it's an odd business to turn one person against a former cohort, uh, and you need to be careful because, you know, they have incentives to tell you what you want to hear. You have to corroborate what they say. So you, you just have to... There's, there's, lots of, there's lots of pitfalls and a lot of, um, you know, areas of quicksand that you just have to be very, very wary of. You know, I, I, I quote my chief of, um, of organized crime who would give the lecture to the, to the rookie prosecutors about how to deal with various aspects of their job, and he would give the, the lecture on cooperating witnesses. And you would say, look, look, you are not allowed to fall in love with your cooperator. And it, it seems like an odd thing to say, but it's not so much because the weirdness of using a cooperating witness is one day it's the United States versus Joe and he's the defendant and he's engaged in, let's say, you know, a rash of violent robberies. Um, but you know that he didn't act alone. And on day one and on day two, you're spending all your time trying to figure out how to convict that person because a, he's a menace to society. Then one day his lawyer calls up and says, you know, Joe can give you the people who are higher up in the food chain of the robbery gang. And then all of a sudden Joe, who decides to confess all his sins and admit guilt, now he's your ally. And now all of a sudden he's gone from being someone you were trying to convict, 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 to somebody who's going to help you convict these other people. And in that transition, a couple of odd things happen that you have to think about. One is... They suddenly go from being sort of a name on an indictment and a person who you, three, who you see only through the evidence of your wiretaps and the witness statements and maybe the surveillance cameras. Now they become a fuller person. And the prosecutor begins to see 
well, maybe they're, they're more than just the sum of their crimes. And even more dangerously, I mean, that's a good thing, that somebody becomes humanized, but the dangerous part of it is you kind of can start to want to believe the things that they're saying because they're your ally in trying to get the rest of your job done. And so just, there, are moments of huma- <clears throat> there are moments of humanity uh, that, that I didn't expect or appreciate that I would have before I became a prosecutor, but then also moments of risk that you have to guard against. You have to guard against the cooperator who just wants to tell you what he thinks you want to hear. Yeah, very much and so. And someone whose story is going to fall apart in the witness stand when he or she is impeached because that egg is then on your face <laughs> and also can do grave injustice if that person simply wants to exculpate himself without really justice being served. And I think that brings us to another area of decision-making as a prosecutor that I found very powerful in this book, uh, the decision about whether to charge someone. As a U.S. attorney, people would sometimes ask me, what's the most difficult part of your job? I tried cases as U.S. attorney. That was tough. I argued cases in the Court of Appeals, often difficult. But the toughest decisions, the, the hardest part of my job, I felt, was always whether to charge someone. And you make this point in the book that once someone is charged, even if they're eventually acquitted, their life is changed forever. And I had the feeling that you took that part of your job very, very seriously. Yeah, you have to. I mean, the book is divided into four sort of phases that are all distinct, all require a lot of attention and understanding that they're distinct phases. And it basically is the arc of any case. The first is inquiry, which is your investigation. You've got to do that with an open mind and a fair mind. But then after you've done your investigation and hopefully you haven't prejudged whether or not you're going to bring a charge, then you have to decide in the, in the phase that I call accusation, do you bring the charge or not? And there are various reasons why you might not. Uh, you know, the most obvious is the investigation didn't yield any evidence. You know, if someone says, um, you know, my neighbor burned down my house, you have to investigate because it's, it seems like a good faith complaint and tip. You research it and you investigate it, and there's absolutely no evidence. That's the easiest case. It's often, you know, it's a luxury to have an easy case like that. Uh, and then, obviously, you don't charge because it would be miscarriage of justice because nothing linked that person to the burning down of the building, and it wasn't an arson. Then you have cases, as I described, the categories of things that are, that are so low-level that depending on what your resources are, depending on whether or not there's, you know, sort of discriminatory aspect to it, depending on which communities are more likely to be targeted for that kind of crime, maybe you don't bring that category of crime at all. And the example I give is the Manhattan subway Day, the sub- subway, the turnstile jumping which had been prosecuted for a long time, and there's still some controversy about that, <clears throat> depending on whether or not you believe in you know, the bro- broken windows and zero-tolerance uh, theories of policing and law enforcement, which is much in debate now. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, in good faith uh, on that think that's not a good idea. So that's one, another category. You know, there can be yet another category of case where, and this is maybe interesting given your position and my position and something I talk about with my students uh, who I teach at NYU Law School, Sometimes prosecutors exercise their discretion not to bring cases uh, to enfor- enforce certain aspects of a law, even though the Congress has passed them. So, for example, and I don't think we get a, we get a lot of grief for this, it is a federal criminal statute. Uh, it's written in a federal criminal statute. The possession, mere possession, <coughs> excuse me, mere possession of certain quantities of narcotics, not just a state offense, it's a federal offense. In the Southern District for a long time, and I'm guessing in most other places, we have only brought narcotics cases if there's a distribution Right. or intend to distribute, 
And if you catch somebody who's done nothing except possess some quantity of... We would never charge those. I don't know how that comports with separation of powers, but prosecutors have to make judgments and decisions about those things. Look, of great controversy in the last year was the question of how do you enforce the laws at the border? Must you enforce them in a particular way so that you separate parents from their children? I don't think so. I think that was an overreach. It's an over, you know, prosecutorial overreach. So there are all these decisions you make about walking away. And then, of course, um, there are cases where you know, there's a technical violation of the law. And this is harder to explain. But for whatever reason, no one has ever before been prosecuted under, in those circumstances under that provision. And then it's an interesting question of what's fair and what's not fair. The law is technically on the books. There's a technical violation of it. I mean, this came into play when people talked about the Logan Act, <clears throat> which is about whether or not people can sort of conduct their own foreign policy. And I don't think there's ever been a successful prosecution of the Logan Act ever, but people talk about it from time to time. And the question then is, that I don't address in the book, but that's relevant to these times, is if you all of a sudden have a case where someone, you could make out the elements of a, of a, of a uh, violation of the Logan Act, after scores and scores of years of never prosecuting that, is that somehow unfair? And those are, those are harder questions. Um, so, you know, yes, there's a, there's a lot of dilemmas uh, surrounding whether or not and, you're charged. And you innovated in some areas, talking about financial crimes, in the use of the FERA statute, where you sought to broaden accountability in the financial area by using a statute in a very innovative way again, uh, one of your assistants stepped forward to bring cases yeah. and, and hold accountable people who did wrong. So, you know, we had this conversation. So most U.S. attorney's offices, people think they only do criminal work. They also do civil work, and a lot of that is defensive. So when, you know, um, uh, you know law enforcement agencies or other agencies get sued in federal court, it's the civil division, assistant U.S. attorneys in whatever relevant office who defend. But there's also an affirmative docket, and there are cases we brought, civil rights cases, we brought cases to try to enforce the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we began to talk about whether we could expand our enforcement to also you know, financial fraud. And we, we had a discussion one weekend uh, to ask what kinds of tools are there. And there's a thing called the False Claims Act, which we have been using for a long time and fairly well known. It was passed during Lincoln's time uh, to try to ferret out waste, fraud, and abuse in government. <clears throat> and there's other more recently passed statute called FIREA that had mostly been used uh, to sue people who had committed a fraud on the bank and that's the Financial Institutions Reform and Enforcement Act. Yes. And then the question was, well, what if a bank acts fraudulently? Does it have an impact on the bank? And nobody had taken the position before, even though the plain language of the statute is very clear, thank you, Congress, um, that obviously the bank could take a fraudulent action, and of course that would have an effect on the bank. Uh, and we didn't think it was much of a stretch, even though people hadn't done it before, in the same way that my predecessors had used wiretaps and in connection with insider trading cases, nothing prohibits it. Securities fraud is, a, is an appropriate predicate for a wiretap. <clears throat> but it just took someone to innovate and think about it for the first time. And so we brought these cases, and in short order, multiple judges said the plain language of the statute allows it, even though the banks had said, well, it was never meant for that purpose. The courts disagreed because the language was plain, and we had some ability to, to go after financial institutions under a civil statute. You know, I want to talk... Uh since we're on the financial crimes area, about a concern that I have had, and I shared it with the former United States Attorney General Eric Holder, that 
corporate culpability really has to be pinned on individuals in the corporate structure. And whether it's the Volkswagen case or some of the financial crimes or now the other product liability cases that the corporations need to be held responsible, but so do individuals within those corporations who may have knowledge and still allow an unsafe product, whether it's a financial product or an airplane or a car, to go on the market. I don't know whether you have some thoughts about that. I think you talk about it a little bit in the book. I do, generally. Um, again, I couldn't discuss every case in the book, but we, you know, we brought <clears throat> two groundbreaking cases against auto manufacturers, against right. Toyota and General Motors. And in the case of Toyota, which is the easier one to talk about, there were individuals that may have been chargeable. Toyota is a foreign, uh, foreign company and not amenable to compulsory process. And at the end of the day, it was going to be very, very difficult to prosecute some of these individuals at Toyota and also get the reform we wanted and the changes we wanted in, in the culture and in the way they reported safety violations to, the, to NHTSA under the Department of Transportation. So we had to... We had to settle for something a little bit less than that. I also, and I appreciate um, that there are folks who think that the best deterrence is the charging of individuals. And in garden variety cases, I think that's true. I think in the vast majority of cases, I think that's true. There's also a role, I think, for you know, more generalized corporate prosecutions. You charge an individual who's an executive for engaging in some fraud, accounting fraud, or whatever else, and you hope and pray that that has a you know, a, a deterrent effect on his colleagues who say, well, there for the grace of God go I. Now when I'm on the cusp of committing this accounting fraud, I'm not going to do it. That may or may not be so. And you also hope and pray that the corporate, you know, the corporate leadership in that place and similarly situated companies will say, well, I don't want to end up like that company, so we need to reform our uh, compliance programs. We need to add compliance folks. We need to change our software. We need to have more. But they don't necessarily do that. And, so we, and I understand these are controversial, but sometimes the best approach is if you can charge individuals, but also come up with an overall resolution like we did with Toyota and GM, where they paid you know, enormous fines. And part of this was because uh, you know, the, the maximum fine, I think, that was possible through a Department of Transportation violation was like $16 million, which was a drop in the bucket for these folks. We ended up getting a billion dollars plus from each of those companies, but also a commitment to revamping their security procedures and their notifications of you know, to regulators about security procedures, which you don't necessarily get just by charging individuals. And part of it, when we're talking about corporations, is culture. I love the line in the book that I think came from one of your assistants about one of the hedge funds that uh, we did our homework, but we cheated. Which, that's, that's right. Which he used in his summation uh, to the jury. But culture is enormously important for anyone uh, it's, important, it's important for a, important for a Senate. It's important for a U.S. Attorney's Office. It's important for a, journalist, a journalistic enterprise. It's important for a school. And people would say, you know, and ask, well, how come these guys are committing crimes? How come those guys aren't committing crimes? They're in the same business. And I, I think it goes to culture. I have an entire chapter in the book, which might seem odd, in a, in a book about sort of legal things, about culture, because I thought it was relevant to answer the question, now, how come some people can avoid the, the prying eyes of the FBI and the DEA and the IRS or whoever else, and it's because they have good culture. Some places are bad, you know, I, in connection with the, the hedge fund you mentioned uh, and other hedge funds, I remember asking the question, it's not dispositive. We were thinking, is the fraud and the, and the criminality so pervasive, do we bring a case against the entire company? And I remember asking the question, you know, how did you make sure that the culture was good? And I got the pat answer that you always get. 
we have a compliance official who went to a great school, and we have um, these compliance manuals, and we have this number of people. And I said, you know, that's all well and good. And again, this is not dispositive, but it struck me. I said, is, could you have any example of the head of the firm ever in an email, in a speech, in a toast, at a dinner, in a, uh, you know, a, a memo to the office ever, or upon, you know, bringing someone in and, and, and onboarding them ever say anything about how integrity is important? Ever utter those words, ever. And maybe you, you, know, you might think it's lip service and it doesn't matter, but I wanted to know the threshold question. Was it ever said? And the answer was no, and that was a place that had a lot of problems. And you know, I think it's too facile to say those two things are you know, irrevocably inter 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 intertwixed, intertwixed, uh, intertwined with, with each other. <laughs> uh, but, th but, those but those things matter. I mean, you know, it, it's got to be important to sometimes say basic things. I often would say, uh, you know, if the only time you've ever told your parent or your child or your spouse, I love you, was the first moment that you, you came upon them, and you never did it again, uh, even though you might think it's obvious, you're not going to be in the relationship for a very long period of time. And the same thing is true in cultures of institutions. We had to say every day, uh, or as often as we could, your job is to do the right thing, not just to get convictions. People in, in other institutions need to say integrity is important. I, I tell the story, I used to spend a lot of time speaking at business schools, talking to business students, who are the future leaders of the country, of the country uh, in, in, in business and in companies. And I had, a, I had a student raise his hand at Harvard Business School and say, you know, it's interesting that you talk about these things, Preet, because this past summer I interviewed to, to work on Wall Street. I interviewed with 10 firms. And of those 10 firms, only one asked me any question that made it appear that they cared about my integrity and that, or that they wanted me to know that they cared about their own reputation for integrity. One out of 10. And this is at, in the midst of all the insider trading prosecutions and all sorts of other criticisms. Quantitative... Uh, abilities are important, other kinds of leadership skills are important, but the idea that you don't spend a little bit of time when you're bringing somebody in, because that's really the, 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 gate, the, gate, the gateway, when you're bringing somebody in to care about their integrity and make sure that they're not adding risk to the books. I mean, the way you need to talk about it with people, when you hear from people like me, or you and your former job, I'm sure, to go, well, there's the, you know, the scold United States attorney who's going to talk about rule of law and law. I would, I would with those audiences... I would say, yeah, that's important. But it's and also you know, good for you. I, I risk. think that uh, this point is, is really important because you show it in the book with real stories about culture and about prosecutions and how the culture led to the downfall of the institutions. And I think that kind of, again, that, those kind of, we might call them war stories, right. uh, but they're very, very important. I want to jump to the two last sections, and then we can come back to the other. Because as you say, there are four sections of the book, and one of them is on the trial, and you talk about judges. Yeah. I think this section of the book is enormously important because you show how judges make a difference in achieving justice. And you talk a little bit about the good and the bad. Uh, and the reason why I mention it is because I'm on the Judiciary Committee, we are now approving, as an institution, I'm voting against a lot of them, nominees who will serve their lifetime. They are young, they have distinct ideologies, and they lack, many of them, any trial experience at all. So maybe you can talk a little bit about 
the role of the judge as you've seen it and how that makes a difference and why some trial experience is important for judges and while why life's experience is important and also about for example you observe very astutely in the book that d district court judges the trial judges never see other judges at work because right. they don't go into somebody else's courtroom it's all true I, I begin the chapter with a story and I don't mention who did I say I, I ran into at, a, at some function uh, a very well-known Hollywood movie director uh, and it, it's Steven Spielberg um, I don't know why I kept him hidden in the book, but it was Steven Spielberg. And I, it was, first of all, I was wild that I was talking to <clears throat> Steven Spielberg. He didn't really know who I was. I was introduced in a particular way. He had some understanding that I was a prosecutor of some sort. And I don't know why. He got into the subject of how do judges get picked. And I said, well, in the Southern District of New York, in the magistrate's court, there's a wheel. As there's multiple wheels. And they're, they're, I think, octagonal. And they're of old wood. And... When you go and the grand jury presents, uh, you present, present the grand jury indictment to the magistrate judge, they, they turn the wheel and you take out a card and in the card, in the envelope, is a card with the name of a judge. And Spielberg was so taken by this, he's like, there's an actual wheel? I said, yes. And he, he pauses for a second and he says, you know, I could imagine a TV series or a movie about that fateful moment of what judge you get. So I don't know that that ever happened. I never saw such a movie or, or TV show. But it goes to your, to your point. And the reason I start the chapter with that is it is so consequential. You think it shouldn't be. Judges should be fungible if everyone's following the same rules and the same procedures and interpreting the law the same way and has the same basic training and background. It shouldn't matter if you have Judge Barrar or Judge Blumenthal or anyone else. But everyone who's ever practiced law knows that you can tell an awful lot. You know, we used to do a thing, which maybe I should not fully confess. On certain cases, we would send the lucky guy or the lucky woman, to go for the wheel out because a lot mattered. You would, you would at, least, at a minimum, you would know, you know how long the trial was going to take. You would know if you were going to get yelled at a lot. You were going to know if it was going to be a pleasant experience or not pleasant experience because the judges, you know, they're, they're masters of the courtroom, and there are all sorts of ways a judge, uh, and mostly they, they don't. I mean, it's mostly very laudatory about judges, especially the judges in the Southern District of New York. You know, judges are people too, and they can have bad days too. Uh, and they can decide they don't really like the government's case, and there are little ways, or they can decide they like the government's case too much, um, and they can they can treat one side like the class pet, and the other side like, you know, they don't like what they're saying, and they have enormous power, not just in ruling over motions, on motions, but also in uh, sort of putting an idea in the mind of the jury. And I tell, almost every story in the book is about cases that I oversaw. I do have a brief interlude where I talk about the Paul Manafort trial right. in the Eastern District of Virginia, where the judge, you know, got some generalized criticism for maybe criticizing the prosecution too much in front of the jury. It's incredibly important. One way to make sure that justice is done is, as you say, and it's an important role you have, um, and I was a staffer on the Judiciary Committee, as you said, is to make sure that judges putting apart the ideology, which is a separate question that has become more troubling over time, is basic competence and understanding of how a courtroom works. Now, there are some people who are... Um, geniuses and they can understand how to do everything, I guess, without a ton of experience. But generally speaking, that's not so. And what's, what's been alarming, watching as an alum of that committee, is seeing uh, the, the degree to which there are people who have been deemed uh, completely not qualified by the American Bar Association, not based on ideology or, or judicial philosophy, but just don't know anything about how a courtroom works. And you know, uh, boy, if you have a judge 
who doesn't have the first clue about how to control the courtroom, about how to make sure that bad arguments aren't being made, to make sure that you're not letting the jury get poisoned by inappropriate arguments, that makes a world of difference, whether you're the defense or the, or the prosecution, or civil litigants for that matter in the case. Nothing could be more important. Yeah, a judge really can have enormous impact by an aside or a denigrating remark, as happened with Judge Ellis in the yeah. Manafort trial. And that's in part because, as you say in the book, the most important thing that any lawyer can bring to a trial is credibility. If a judge undermines yeah. the prosecutor's credibility, the jury is going to take a signal from Absolutely. the Absolutely. The jury, as you remember, right, the uh, jury's hanging on every word right. of the judge. The judge is the Solomonic figure, wears a robe, has a gavel, sits higher up from everyone else, decide, you know, everyone stands up when the, when the judge comes in the courtroom. Everyone stands up when they want to address the court or address the judge. So there's an enormous built-in, and that's good because people need to understand the importance of the solemnity and the sobriety of the, of the occasion. It's the judge who swears in every witness. You swear before the judge to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So the judge has enormous power and can abuse it. You know, uh, the other th part of the section on the trial that I thought was very, very interesting is that you use it as a kind of metaphor for our public discourse yeah. because it is a search for the truth. You can't hurl insults. Right. You can't denigrate people with sort of uh, personal injury. And I was struck by that point because often I think the courtroom is a pretty rough and tumble place. It can be. <laughs> Not compared to cable TV. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you can talk a little bit about that theme, which yeah. I think is also very insightful. So for the lawyers and non-lawyers alike who are watching, um, it has become passe and maybe deserved to malign lawyers, right? Everyone knows lawyer jokes, and we, our profession often deserves the, you know, the ridicule uh, and complaints that we get. But in modern times, I think, especially the last couple of years, three, four, five years, there's something to be, I think, admired in how lawyers deal with things, and especially, in my experience, criminal justice. Um, and there's lots and lots of problems, obviously. But when you go to the basic issue of how to resolve a dispute or how to persuade someone to your point of view, what you, what you have, I think, too much in society, as you say, you have two problems. You have one is that when people do engage they yell invective and they say, you know, you know, you're ugly or you're fat, uh, or there's whataboutism, and there's all sorts of non-logical argument that goes on, and it's very mean-spirited, and it's very terrible, and it affects people's opinions of the whole process. As bad as that is, what's even worse, I think, in some ways, is the other problem. And the other problem is people don't engage with the other side at all. You have your view about tax policy. You have your view about foreign policy. You have your view about uh, health care policy, whatever. And your view is your view. And the only people you will ever hear from or follow on Twitter or listen to on television are people who have your exact same point of view, and that's it. Both of those things are anathema in a court of law. Just imagine if the defense lawyer or the prosecutor, when they didn't like the arguments being made by the other side, put their hands over their ears and just you know, sang a nursery rhyme or something and didn't pay attention. You are paid. It is your obligation under the Constitution, whether you're the prosecutor or the defense lawyer. I mean, the defense lawyer is obliged to represent zealously the client prosecutor obliged to represent zealously the public, you have no choice but to listen and engage and then when you, to, to make your points, to persuade the jury to your point of view. And when you do it, as you say, you, you can't do it with broad brush. You can't do it based on irrelevant things. You can't do it based on hatred or cynicism 
or racism or xenophobia. Or, and imagine, imagine an immigration case. You're having an argument about an immigration uh, crime, and people were allowed to say things like Mexicans are rapists as a general matter. People are allowed to say s-hole countries or, you know, any one of a number of things that seems to pass for okay in modern dialogue. And then the final point that I think is really incredible is the jurors are admonished every day to do what? Keep an open mind, even while the debate is going on. Uh, and the one, the one in, most interesting way to me, you can get kicked off a jury, obviously if you're late or, you're, or, you're, or you violate the, the judge's rules, but if you choose not to deliberate, if you go into the jury room at the end of a trial and you say, my mind is made up, I know what I know, I saw the evidence, not guilty or guilty, and you don't deliberate with them, there's a legal basis for being kicked off the jury. Imagine if in society, in order to have the full benefits uh, and privileges of citizenship, there was some obligation to, to talk to your fellow citizens who disagree with you and do it in a respectful way. I think we'd be better off. And before someone is even chosen for a jury, during the voir dire process, they're asked by the judge, do you think you can listen to your fellow jurors and take their views into account? Yeah. And you use that word, listen, in the book, I think, in a very powerful way. You know, the other part of the book that I think will be illuminating for a lot of folks is the emphasis on the rules, talking about truth-telling right. and about seeking the truth, the rules that exclude certain evidence. And jurors are also told, you can't read about this right. trial. You can't talk to your relatives about it while the trial is going on. You have to focus on the evidence that's presented in court. And sometimes, as we know to our frustration, prosecutors are barred from presenting certain evidence, even confessions that are ruled inadmissible. The rules of admissibility, I think, are important. Yeah, because it has to go directly to the question of guilt or innocence. It has to be, it has to be incredibly relevant. I think people would be surprised um, about how many things, not just you know, a bad search, if, if you know, uh, th there was a bad search by, by a cop and you suppress the evidence. People see that in movies and they understand that. But there's a, there's a I say in the book, there's a paradox Trials are about openness and about truth and about transparency, but they're done through a series of concealments. We conceal all sorts of things from the jury. We conceal from the jury in most circumstances whether this person has ever been committed, has ever been guilty of a crime before. We conceal from the jury uh, what the party affiliations of the defense lawyer is and the prosecutor is. We conceal from the jury who, what president appointed the judge. We conceal from the jury uh, all sorts of things about the background um, of the defendant. We conceal from the jury what other people may have done in connection with the crime that could, you know, impinge on the, on the question of, of guilt or innocence on the part of the, the person who's on trial then. And you do that in the way that you sometimes have blind grading of exams. You conceal the identity so people can focus only on what's important and only on what's right and proper to have before you. So, you know, there's a lot to learn from the, from the trial process. Let's talk about the final part of the book, which is sentencing. And I always felt when I was a federal prosecutor, uh, I also served as state attorney general, uh, but I always felt that was in some ways the most consequential part of a criminal proceeding, and very often the prosecutor's views carry less weight there than maybe other parts of the trial. Maybe you can talk a little bit about sentencing. So in that last section called punishment about sentencing, and all sorts of punishments um, in, in regular life, too, uh, including grounding your children. Yeah. Punishment is really, really hard. I, I say in the book that one reason I never aspired to be a judge is I, I and this might surprise some people, given that we would advocate 
ranges of punishment for people that we prosecuted. But the idea that I would wear a robe and decide what the perfect and just sentence would be for this person, whether it's 70 months or 78 months, and that eight-month differential, which seems you know, just a you know, few-month difference on a piece of paper on the, on the sheet that you fill out, um, the judgment form, that's eight months of someone's life. Lots of things can happen. That, that eight months can make the difference between seeing your child graduate or not graduate or, or you know, saying goodbye to your father or your mother before they pass away. I don't know how to do that. Our system, I know Congress has struggled with it mightily and courts have struggled with it mightily over time. Punishment, is, it's a very, very difficult thing to get it right. And, you know, you have two things that conflict with each other that are both good faith principles that you care about. One is uniformity. It shouldn't make a difference. If Preet Bharara gets arrested in Maine or he gets arrested in San Diego for the same crime, the same criminal activity, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter what, uh, what, what color you are, uh, what your gender is, what your age, all those things shouldn't matter. So, so Congress, you know, developed the sentencing guidelines and to try to impose some rationality so that people would have, uh, you know, some sense that there was uniformity and fairness. But on the other hand, you can't ultimately do in every case proper justice unless you're looking at the individual and the, and the millions of things that are unique about that particular case. So individualized justice and uniform justice sometimes clash with each other when you talk about sentencing. It's a, it's a very, very difficult thing that I think is another reason, by the way, you want judges who are very, very thoughtful and have perspective uh, and understand the consequences of their decision. I mean, every judge I've ever talked to has said it's the most difficult thing that they do, and it's hard to know how to get it right. And probably it's the case, and this is, is not for now nonfiction authors, but for members of Congress, to figure out the ways in which you can make it more fair. The irony is that Congress is moving in the direction of criminal justice reform and eliminating some of the mandatory minimums. You talked a little bit earlier about how you don't prosecute certain cases, and Congress is moving toward not prosecuting certain possession cases at the federal level, in part because of the disparate impact yeah. racially and in other ways. But in, in some ways, the law is following the practice of the best and smartest prosecutors, which you probably saw when you were on the staff of the Judiciary Committee. But I want to, uh, since this is a very human book, yeah. it's about law, it's about justice, it's about abstract notions, but it's told in a very human way. And the last story in the book that you tell in sort of conclusion, I found just tremendously moving. Maybe you want to, yeah. without giving away the end of the book, well, but I think it's emblematic of the whole book. So I started out the book with this premise and this interview with the premise that it's people who do justice. Uh, and that without the involvement of human hands, the, the law is as uninspiring as a violin kept in its case, is, a, is another metaphor that I use. Um, but the law can't do everything. You know, the law can't cancel hate. The law can't make us love each other. The law can't teach us grace. There are all these things that the law cannot do, and we can't expect it to. We need people who are good, not only to carry out the law's best aims uh, and the interests of justice, but also these things that are more important and grander, like mercy. You know, you don't find mercy in the, in the sentencing uh, statutes. Uh, nor do you find grace, nor do you find God. And so I have this chapter at the end, it's called Beyond Justice, and just sort of telling a remarkable story of a man who was the subject of a, a victim of a hate crime right after 
And right after 9-11, you know, it gets sort of lost in the fog of all those other things that were going on on that horrible, tragic, t terrible day. Uh, there were some people who thought that they were going to exact revenge. And there was a, a man, young man by the name of Mark Anthony Stroman in Texas who decided it was his job to kill some Arabs after that day. And he went and he shot uh, several people, a couple of whom died. He was convicted of one of those murders and, and sentenced to death, actually. But the story I tell at the end of the book is one uh, relates to a man named Reis Bouyan, who was a Bangladeshi immigrant to this country, who was shot in the face, point-blank range, by Mark Anthony Stroman. And he didn't die. And I tell, so that's not that remarkable a story so far as it goes. Until you learn about Reis Bouyan, that time went by, his wounds never completely healed. He had all these pellets in his face. Uh, he's he's a, a devout Muslim. It would hurt him to pray when he had to bring his head to the ground because he had pellets lodged in his forehead. And he decided to forgive the person who had shot him. And not only that, he found out that he was on death row. The victim who was shot, for whom no care was given by Mark Anthony Stroman, who was basically a white supremacist, tried to get him off of death row. And tried to get Stroman off. Tried to get Stroman off of death row, even though he had done this to him. And he kept thinking, you know, I don't know what, what good is accomplished by executing him. And just tell the story, then Mark Anthony Stroman learns about Reis Bouillon's efforts on his behalf. And he becomes sort of transformed at the end. And I just thought, you know, there's a lot of discussion about rules and laws and compliance programs uh, and evidentiary standards and all of that. But the things that are really special, that can be really moving and, and transform folks and transcend these divides we have, are stories like what Reis Bouillon did and how he went from victim to being someone who transformed the person who victimized him and tried to kill him and leave him for dead. And so I was so inspired by that story, I ended the book with it. And you know, uh, so that people will want to read this book, I'm going to say to you that, and not ask you to repeat it here, that the quote from Stroman just before his execution, and I'm not going to say it because I want people to read this book and go to the end and read what he has to say about his own execution. And he was put to death. Yeah. But what he says before it, is so powerful and moving. I think it shows that, that quality of our justice system that can bring about redemption, grace, some, some kind of healing even. Yeah, um, hopes. So I, uh, unfortunately, I have to tell you, the bad news is we're out of time. Oh, no. And I have uh, notes here. Yes, lawyers, take notes. Real, you must be a real lawyer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which could take us another three, four hours. That's also the good news because people should read this book. There's so much depth in it and breadth, and uh, there's so much to learn from it. And I just want to thank you for writing Senator, it. Thank you so much. Giving me this opportunity to talk to you about it's, it. It's really but, an honor. It's an honor to, to be here with you. Thank you so much. Thank you.